I just want to thank you first off for all the response that we've gotten to this series. I, I thought it was going to be a meaningful series, but so many of you have written and talked to us about how this series has impacted your life. I think one of the reasons why it has such universal appeal is we all know what it's like to get stuck. We're trying our best in life only to have life go wrong, and then we can wind up frozen or trapped or sidelined, and we have a hard time moving on with life. And it's one of the most common expressions that I, I hear from people who are in tough times. They'll say to me, I need to just get on with my life. I need to move on. And so many of the people who've said that to me, I really wondered if they understood how to move on. How, how do you move on when you're stuck? And so what we've tried to do in this series is explore various ways in which we can get stuck because your stuck might not be my stuck. And so we've looked at various things that can cause us to get frozen or trapped in life. For instance, we talked about stubbornness, how that sometimes we can make the wrong call and instead of being honest about it, we double down and we get into more trouble because we re refuse to let go of our perspective. And then we talked about bitterness, how sometimes when people hurt us, or when life goes wrong for us, it's hard to deal with the hurt, and we can actually get locked in time at that spot where we were hurt. And then last week, Jonathan brought a tremendous message, and he talked to us about how that sometimes even good things in life can go bad, like something that gets spoiled in your refrigerator. And we have a hard time cutting loose because we've invested so much emotional and personal capital in it. And Jonathan gave us a great way of looking at that, about how to let go and how to deal with life when it goes wrong, and we have to just say we've got to cut our losses and move on. But today, I want to talk about something that's very personal for me. And when I laid out this series last summer, this particular message that I'm about to share with you is the one that meant the most to me. And I have to be honest with you. It's a little bit on the existential side. And because of that, I'm still challenged to wrap my mind around everything. And, and I'm just praying that the Holy Spirit will tailor-make this message for your life because I'm not really sure I can, I can explain all of this. I just want to lay it out for you as Jesus gave, gave it to us. And here's the place where I want to start. Good people can get stuck. You know, the best people in the world, people with, with, with high motives and good motives can get stuck in life. And here's the thing. Sometimes we fail trying to do the right thing. Now, I want to be real clear. I'm not talking about giving it your all and giving your best and it just doesn't work out. That's not necessarily failure. I've never been much for poetry, but one of my favorite poems is Rudyard Kipling's If. It was a poem he wrote to his son about how to be a grown-up. And there's a particular line that I love in Kipling's If, and I guess I probably say it to myself at least once a week. He said, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. I like that. He's saying that winning and losing sometimes can be an imposter. What we think is a win may not be a win, and what we think is a loss may not turn out to be a loss. I mean, how many of us have lived long enough to give everything that we had only to have it not seem to measure up and yet later on look back on that experience and realize that it was in that moment that we planted the seeds of ultimate victory, Right? So again, when I talk about failing and trying to do your best, I don't mean you give it your all and it just doesn't seem to be enough. I mean, you were trying to do the right thing and at a key moment, at a critical moment, you either did something wrong or you failed to do something and because of that, it all fell apart. How do you reboot? How do you move on when you've tried your best and yet you fell? Well, I want to take you to a story in the Bible about a guy who is perhaps one of the most well-known 
people in the Bible, one of the most well-known characters. In fact, if you grew up in a Protestant church, you would have known about him. If you grew up in a Catholic church, you would have talked about him frequently. He did indeed become a legend. He was one of Jesus' disciples, and his name was Simon Peter. But we want to look at Peter's life at a very bad point. Maybe we would say the worst point in Peter's life. Peter fails, and let me read, read it to you. I mean, this is the night that Jesus was going to be arrested, and Jesus was explaining to his disciples, the 12 who followed him, that he was going to be arrested and crucified. And they didn't believe him, and they didn't like that, and they were trying to talk him out of it. And Jesus said, not only am I going to be delivered over to be killed, he said, one of you is going to betray me. Now, you and I know from history, in retrospect, who that one was. That was Judas Iscariot. When Jesus said to the 12, one of you is going to betray me, the one who was going to betray him knew who he was because he was already in the process. He went to the chief priests and the scribes and he said, how much jack will you give me if I turn him over to you? But the other 11 had no idea. And Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. And I am convinced, and I've been convinced for the years, they thought he meant one of you is going to accidentally betray me. One of you is going to do something, say something that's going to get me into trouble. Because at that table, they begin to look at each other and say, is it me? Am I the one? And it's at that moment that the guy of the disciples, who was always in the front of the room, teachers, with his hand up saying, call on me. It was Simon Peter. Peter said this to Jesus. Even if everyone else falls to pieces on account of you, I won't. I mean, when Jesus said to the disciples, one of you is going to betray me, Peter's like, yeah, I kind of figured that would happen. I mean, there's my kid brother, Andrew. He's a total screw-up. And there's Matthew. He used to be a tax collector. He'll cave under pressure. And there's Philip. He's a follower. And there's John. He goes to pieces over everything. And so Peter is saying to Jesus, hey, don't worry about this. I got this. Even if everybody else chokes on account of you, I won't. And Jesus answers, don't be so sure. This night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Well, now all of a sudden, this thing is turned. Peter st stood up and said, hey, I'll go with you all the way. And now Jesus is calling him out in front of the others. And he's saying, no, actually, you won't. Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny that you even know me. And look at Peter's response. He protested, even if I had to die with you. Now think about this. Peter, is, he has used two extremes to talk about how much he is going to stand with Jesus. He's saying, if all the others fail and I have to stand alone, then I'm, it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm going to stand up for you. And now he's using another extreme. He's saying, even if it, even, even if it means my death, I'll, I will stand with you. So there you have it. But if you've studied your Bible or read your Bible or, or maybe you heard this in church, um, you will know that Peter did exactly what Jesus said he was going to do. And here's the thing. Here's what you have to understand. Peter, Peter didn't deny the Lord because there was an army with bayonets at his throat that said either deny the Lord or we're going to kill you. He denied the Lord in three innocuous situations. I mean, first of all, it was a servant. Servants had no standing in those days. But there was a servant who said to Peter, hey, weren't you with him? And Peter said, no, I don't know him. And then it was a little girl. A little girl said, I think I remember you being with him. And Peter said, not one me. And, and then she started saying to the others, I, I think he was with him. And then the third group that he denied Jesus, a third time he denied Jesus, it was to a group of bystanders. You get what I'm saying? I'm saying it wasn't like his life was on the line. It wasn't like somebody was threatening him with death. 
It was like just people that couldn't really do him any harm. But the third time, Peter, in order to distance himself from any relationship with Jesus, cussed and said, I tell you, I don't know him. And the Bible says at that moment, the rooster crowed. And Jesus turned and looked at Peter. Three days later, Jesus is alive again, and Peter's finished. I mean, Peter is like, you know, I failed, and so I'm going to do what many of us do. Peter's like, I'm going to punish myself. I'm going to throw myself out of the group. You ever do that? You ever just like, wow, I failed. I'm not going to wait for them to fire me. I'm going to fire myself. I'm not going to wait for the people to punish me. I'm going to punish myself. And that was Peter. Peter's like, yeah, I followed Jesus for three years, and I thought I might be able to do something, but clearly I choked at a moment of destiny. I'm firing myself. I'm going back to fishing. In fact, in John chapter 21, we read these words. Peter said, I'm going fishing. Well, that's the life he had lived. He had been a fisherman. His daddy was a fisherman, most likely his granddaddy was a fisherman, probably his uncles on both sides of his you know, family were fishermen. That's how Peter grew up. He was cleaning his nets when Jesus came and said, hey, follow me three years ago. So Peter was like, okay, well, if I can't do what Jesus wants me to do, I'm going to go back to fishing. I'm going to go back to the least of one thing that I know. Jesus is alive. Peter's finished. Well, the Bible tells us that they go fishing. And by the way, when Peter said, I'm going fishing, the others said, I'm going with you. One of the dangerous things about punishing yourself and trying to check out on life is there'll be other people who get in your boat. Sometimes it'll be your kids. And so the others said, okay, we're going to go with you. So they go back to the one thing that they know how to do, and they fish on that, and they don't catch anything. I mean, can you see the limbo that Peter's in? He can't seem to follow Jesus. He fires himself. And on the other hand, he said, I'm going back to fishing, and he can't catch anything. Let me ask, and I know that not everyone is a Christ follower here, and thank you so much for coming. If you're not a Christ follower or you're even a non-theist and you're saying, you know, Mark, is it okay if I'm here? We're so glad you're here. And I don't want to presume that everyone's in the same place. But let me just talk for a moment to those of you who are Christ followers. Have you ever gotten caught in between where you were, your old life, and your new life? I mean, it's like you can't go back to where you were before you met Jesus, but you can't seem to live the life that you think Jesus wants you to live. Have you ever been in that limbo? It's like you're, in, you're uncomfortable in either world. I'm uncomfortable being away from God, and I'm uncomfortable trying to think about following God. And that's where Peter is at this moment. He can't go back to fishing because he's a flop at fishing, and he can't seem to follow Jesus. So they're sailing the boat into shore, and all of a sudden, there's a solitary figure on the beach. They get sight of him, and this solitary figure calls out to them, and he says, hey, what all fishermen ask other fishermen, did you catch anything? And so you can see 11 guys go. And the guy on the beach said, hey, throw your nets on the right side of the boat. Well, I mean, these guys have fished all night, and they were pro fishermen. They don't know who this guy is. It's just a beachcomber out there with a little fire going on the beach. Throw your nets on the right side of the boat. They do. And all of a sudden, there's so many fish in the nets that the nets are breaking, they can't even get the nets to the boat. Peter says, that's the Lord. <laughs> Same thing happened in Luke chapter 5, three years before. Peter said, that's the Lord. There's only one person who can do that. And sure enough, it was Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. He was there on the beach. He had breakfast cooked. And he said, come on, guys. And he served breakfast to them. And now here's what I want you to get in your head. I want you to see this picture. Because now, you know, in, in the past, Peter was like as close to Jesus as he could get. Like I said, teachers, he's a kid in the front row with his hand up saying, call on me. Not anymore. Peter's like down at the end of the line saying, 
I'll go ahead and have breakfast. It's really good to hang with Jesus, but I'm just going to stay down here and hope nobody calls on me. The Bible says after breakfast, Jesus calls him out. Simon, son of Jonah. Hey, you remember when your mama called you by your whole name? <laughs> I do. Stephen Mark Hoover, it's not going to be good. <laughs> Simon, son of Jonah, and something else. Notice that Simon, I mean, Jesus doesn't use the name that he changed his, Peter's name to. One of the most humorous ironies in the Bible is that his name was Simon. You know what Simon means? It means one who listens. <laughs> If there was one guy in the 12 who didn't listen, it was Simon Peter. But Jesus saw a lot in him, didn't he? And one day, sometime back before this, Jesus had said to Simon, I'm going to change your name. From now on, you're going to be known as Rock. Everybody's going to know you as Rock. The Rock people lean on. The Rock that's stable. The Rock that, the rock that everybody goes to. I'm, I'm going to name you Rock. Peter, that's what Peter means. Jesus is not calling him Peter now. He's calling him his old name. And, and Peter's not surprised. Have you noticed that when you fail trying to do the right thing, people give up on you? Isn't that true? People check out on you. People write you off. And that's, Peter's just sure Jesus done the same thing. I mean, whatever Jesus saw in him before, he doesn't see him anymore. He doesn't call him Peter, calls him Simon, his old name. Simon, son of Jonah. And now Peter knows, here it's going to come. Jesus is going to ream him out in front of everybody else. I mean, he's going to ask him stuff like, what were you thinking to deny me in front of a little girl? And where, where were you? You said you bragged and boasted and said you were going to be with me no matter what. I didn't see you there at the cross. I mean, Peter, how could you cuss me when I was dying for your sins? I mean, Peter knows it's Simon, son of Jonah. Why did you screw up? And Jesus doesn't ask him any of those things. He said, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Let's press pause. Let's go back and let's do an autopsy or a post-mortem on what happened that night when Peter did wrong. Couldn't we, couldn't we agree on certain foundational things? I mean, couldn't we, couldn't we at least agree that Peter meant to do something good? I mean, that night when Peter said, I'll follow you no matter what, he wasn't saying, hey, I'm going to go out and chase women while you're on the cross. He wasn't saying, hey, I'm going to go shoot up and get high and just pretend it's not happening. I mean, Peter didn't say, you know, I I'm just going to go on a three-day bender here while you, you know, he said, I'm going to stay with you. He, he, he meant to do something good. And what he meant to do was based on his love. He loved Jesus. I don't think he meant to fail. Church, could I plead with you, you know, those of you in the North Auditorium, those watching online, watching on television, could I plead with you for just a moment? When somebody fails and they're trying to do the right thing, be sure that you're gentle with that person. Because you know what? I honestly believe Peter meant, intended to stay with Jesus no matter what. And I believe something else. I believe Peter actually thought he loved Jesus more than the other guys. And here's something else he may actually have. 
How do you reboot when you fail trying to do the right thing? You know what? When you fail trying to do the wrong thing, that's not pleasant, but at least the reboot is simple. In other words, if you cheat, you, know, you can say to yourself, well, okay, I screwed up, I failed. But if I quit cheating, maybe things will be better for me. I mean, if you steal something and you fail, you can say, well, maybe if I quit stealing, I mean, I'm honest, maybe things will go better for me. If you fail because you lied, you say, well, okay, well, if I tell the truth next time. If you fail because you're selfish, you can say, okay, maybe I need to start putting my wife ahead of myself. I mean, when we fail doing wrong and we can identify what we did wrong, the reboot at least is pretty simple. But when you fail having tried to do the right thing, the reboot is complicated, right? Because it's like, what do I do next? I mean, if I go back and look at what I tried to do, my heart was in the right place. I really wanted to do the right thing. I really gave it my best effort. So I'm scared to even try again. Do, do you see why Peter fired himself? How do you reboot when you fail trying to do the right thing? Well, as I said, when I was planning out this series, this became the most important point of the whole series to me personally. I'm still trying to wrap my mind around it. Jesus gives us the answer with his surprising question. The, the fact that he didn't ream Peter out or excoriate him for promising to stay with him, the fact that Jesus just asked him, do you love me? We now have the ultimate component necessary to reboot when we crash trying to do the right thing. Do you remember the old song, those of you who are under 40 have no idea what I'm talking about. Do you remember the old song from the 80s? I think it was, was it Tina Turner? What's love got to do with it? Well, that's the question that's on my mind. I had, you know, I, I titled the sermon, Who Do You Love? Uh, you know, what, you know what, where my music era comes from. But, I mean, what does love have to do with failing? And I want to do something for a few moments, and I'm going to ask your indulgence. I want to take you on a scripture journey to look at four verses, and we're going to see a construct develop from these four verses. And so if you'll allow me just a little time here to develop these four verses, we're going to see what love has to do with failure when we try to do the right thing. Here is the first verse. We'll just go back to the night where Peter made his promise and listen to the words of Jesus. Jesus said, Simon, Simon. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. So, when Peter denied the Lord, what, what happened? His faith failed. And we're not surprised. Jesus talked about how important faith was. And the Bible says in 1 John, here's the second of those verses, 1 John chapter 5 and the fourth verse, the Bible says, this is the victory that overcomes our faith. Peter didn't overcome. He, he failed. So what, what went wrong? His faith failed. You say, well, Mark, why are you going here? Because I'm just surprised that Jesus asked him about his love and not his faith. Because if his faith failed, we would expect Jesus to say, okay, Peter, do you think you can have faith in me now, now that I've risen from the grave? I mean, Peter, do you think you can work up some faith? But he didn't ask him about that. He asked him about love. And now here is the catalyst verse. In the book of Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, the Bible speaks of faith working through love. Now, the word working is the word Greek word energeo. You want to take a crack at any words we get from that in English? Any form of the word energy or energize. The Bible says faith is energized by love. Now, here's, here's how it works. Faith is what takes risks. Love is is why you take risks. Now, I've never learned to be in any important relationship or any important endeavor without risk. Risk is just part of anything important. So remember this. Faith is what will take the risk, 
but love is why you take the risk. Consequently, ergo, love is foundational. That is why Jesus didn't even go to the issue of faith with Peter. He was saying to him, do you love me? Here's the thing. It's going to take faith to be a husband. It's going to take faith to be a wife. Lord knows it takes faith to be a parent. It's going to take faith to prosecute a career. It's going to take faith to do anything that's forward motion in life. It's going to take faith to walk with Christ. And so we can talk all day about faith, and and that's an important discussion to have. But remember this. Whenever God talks to us about faith, he assumes that we have an underlying love. Because here's the deal. If we don't love our wives, we won't take any risks for them. We won't have the faith to risk for them. If we don't love God, we won't take any risks I mean, that's why so many Christians really don't do much. They don't give much. They don't serve much. They really, it, Christianity doesn't affect their life very much. They're un, unwilling to take those risks because they have no love for God. And so that's why Jesus said to Peter, do you love me? Now, here's the thing. Here's where we're going to get to a verse where all of it is going to come together. In 1 John 4, 18, the Bible says, there is no fear in love. In other words, Where there is perfect love, there is zero fear. Where there is total fear, there is zero love. Love and fear are enemies. They cannot cannot exist in 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 the same container. There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out all fear. So then love has not been made perfect in anyone who is afraid because fear has to do with punishment. So here's how it works. When fear becomes stronger than love, we run away. Anyone here is running here, away here today, it's not that you don't love. It's just that fear has become stronger than love in your life. And so consequently, you run away from that important relationship, whatever it is. When love becomes stronger than fear, we run in. Now, I love to wear this shirt on national holidays when I speak. I don't know that you could call today a national holiday, but it's a day of remembrance. Fifteen years ago, the World Trade Center and the Pentagon uh, were attacked by terrorists. 2,606 people lost their lives in the World Trade Center. And there's so many stories of heroism of people who ran in. I was reading this week about one particular story about a young man named Wells Crowther. He's 24 years old. When Wells was a little boy, his family was getting ready for church one Sunday morning, and his father, when he was putting on his suit, put a white handkerchief, or he put a pocket square in his vest pocket, or his chest pocket. And so Wells went to his dad and said, I want to wear one of those. And his dad was afraid that if he put a white handkerchief in his pocket, that Wells wouldn't understand that he wasn't supposed to blow his nose on it. (laughs) So he put a white pocket in his, in his, uh, in his, chest pocket of his jacket, a white, white handkerchief in his chest pocket. And he said, this one is for show. And then he brought him a, a red handkerchief and he said, I'm going to give you this to put in your back pocket. This one is for blow. This is for show. This is for blow. <laughs> you know what's interesting is Wells loved that red handkerchief so much. I mean, he was never without it. He was, when he was riding his bike down the street, he was in his back pocket. If he was playing sports, he had that red handkerchief with him at school. He had it with him all the time. He, he actually became to be known as the kid with the red handkerchief. He went on to Boston College and played lacrosse and played hockey. And, and whenever he would wear a helmet in lacrosse, he would tie the red bandana around his head. 
Well, in 1999, Wales graduated from Boston College, and he took a job as an equities trader on the 104th floor of the South Tower. One day, he called his dad, and he said, Dad, I need to make a career change. See, when Wells was 16, he had been a volunteer firefighter, and his dad said, well, change your careers? He said, son, you just sort of got there. And he said, yeah, Dad. He said, if I have to sit behind this computer the rest of my life, I'm going to lose my mind. He said, I want to be a New York City fire department. I want to be a fireman. I think it was four days later, 9-11 happened. Well, at 8.46, American Airlines Flight 11 flew into the North Tower. And Wells called his mother. He didn't get her, but he left a message on her voice, voice line and said, Mom, this is Wells. I'm okay. Everything's fine. And I guess he started making his way down the stairs. But at 902, United Flight 175 flew into the South Tower where he was. He managed to get down to the 71st floor, which is kind of a landing, and there were a lot of people there in the darkness and the smoke, and some had already been killed, but there were many others just sort of frozen, standing, not knowing what to do. And all of a sudden, Wells sprang into action, and people talked about hearing a young man with an authoritative voice yell out, I found the stairwell, follow me, follow me. And so a whole group of them followed him from the 78th floor down the 61st floor, and eventually they came to elevators that were still working where the firefighters were directing people, and he got that group on the elevators, and they got out safely. And, and instead of going with them, he said, I'm going back up. And they said, well, you better come with us. He said, no, I'm going back up to get some more. So he went back up to the 78th floor, and he found another group. This time he carried a woman on his shoulders, and he led that group down the stairs. He had yelled out, follow me. I know where the stairway is. And he led that group down. And then he said, I'm going back up. I'm going back up for more. At 9.59, the South Tower came down. Wells' mother said, I guess it's just a mother's heart. She said, I knew the moment I saw that he was gone. They didn't find his body for six months. They didn't find his body till March of 2002. And when they did, they found it in the lobby with a group of firefighters. In fact, his body was lying next to an assistant chief. 75 feet away from an exit. He could have walked away at any time. But there were a group of firefighters there helping those who had made it down get out when the tower came down. The strange part of the story is, is when survivors began to talk, there were many survivors who began to talk about a mysterious young man who came out of nowhere wearing a red bandana. What was it that made Wells Crowther run in and stay there and go back and go back and go back? It's as simple as Jesus' statement. His love was greater than his fear. See, whenever we fail trying, somewhere along the way, if you do a post-mortem on the situation, you'll discover that at some point fear started driving the train. And fear has a high failure rate. The Bible says in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8, love never fails. Do you realize that? I mean, fear fails all the time. Love never fails. Why is it? Because when fear overcomes love, we run the opposite direction. But when love is stronger than fear, we run into the situation, and that's when we begin to do the heroic things. And that's why Jesus didn't talk to Peter about his failure. He didn't even talk to Peter about faith. He talked to Peter about love. He was asking him, do you love me? Who am I talking to here that needs to try again? 
There's a husband here today, and you feel like such a failure. And the truth be told, you can list the reasons why you're a failure. And the thing of it is, as long as you focus on failure and trying to fix the failures, you're going to say to yourself, I'm never going to be able to do this. And at some point, you're going to say, well, I guess I might as well not even try anymore. There's a wife. There's a parent here. There's someone in a career here. And you're looking at everything that you failed at, and you're asking yourself, how am I going to fix all these things that I failed at? And I promise you, if you look at it from that perspective, it's going to drive you crazy, and at some point you're going to say, I'm going to throw up my hands and I'm going to quit. Because what will happen is you will think about your past failure, and you'll look at these insurmountable challenges, and you'll say to yourself, I just can't do this, and you'll walk away. So the challenge is not going through the punch list. The challenge is rediscovering your love. Think about this. When Jesus asked Peter, do you love me, he asked him three times, publicly. Now, why did he ask him three times? I know there's a theological answer to this. He denied Jesus three times and so on and so forth. Maybe, 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 I don't know. I think the reason why Jesus asked Peter three times is Peter, Peter needed to rediscover his love. And sometimes it's a challenge to rediscover your love. Let me explain what I mean. I've always been honest with you about this at New Spring. In all my 30, now almost 32 years here. I struggle with fear. Anxieties are my biggest issue. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but do I have any friends here? <laughs> do I have any soul brothers, soul sisters here? I mean, anxieties are my biggest issue. And that's the reason why this sermon is so important to me. Listen, let me tell you something. In, in all my years, I've never had to have anybody remind me how scared I am. Honestly. I've never, had to remind, I've never had to have anybody remind me of my fears. It's not like I'm in a situation and somebody said, hey, wait a minute, Mark, before you get into that rumor, you're really scared of that. No, because it's like my fears are always standing first in line. I never have to be reminded how scared I am, but I do have to be reminded of how much I love. And so do you. Every husband here loves his wife much more than he realizes. If you don't believe that, just go talk to someone who's lost his wife. Every wife here loves her husband much more than she realizes. If you don't believe that, just go ask a widow. Every parent here loves their children much more than they realize. They may be driving you crazy, but you love them much more than you realize. If you don't think so, just go ask a family in the waiting room up at St. Jude's. Strange, isn't it? We remember how scared we are, but we don't remember how much we love. <laughs> I remember back when I was counseling years ago, I counseled hundreds of couples. And there were many couples that, you know, got help and went on and, and did fine. But oftentimes there would be people that would, it's like they were coming by my office on their way to the lawyers. It was like, we're going to try one more thing. And, um, and I, I was always glad and appreciative that they would come and at least and try to keep their marriage together. And some of the marriages didn't, didn't, didn't work out. But I never will forget the most toxic couple I ever talked to. I think it's about 15 years ago. And I didn't know the couple very well, but I knew the man's name. He was a prominent businessman in our community. His name was prominent on his, on his business and in commercials. And so I knew who he was. Listen. I've never heard anybody talk to each other the way, they talk to e the way they talk to each other. When they came into my office, he sat as far away as he could from her. I felt like I was at Flushing Meadows watching a tennis match, you know, going like this. <laughs> and you know, here's the thing. Usually when people come in to talk to a pastor, they're on their best behavior. 
This couple was yelling at each other in my office, in my presence. It was like I wasn't even in the room. And the things they said to each other were hateful and toxic and bitter. And I'm telling you, of all the couples I've ever counseled, I thought they had no chance. So finally, when I caught a break, (laughs) you know what I told them? I said, I don't think you have a snowball's chance. Well, I'm not a good counselor, am I? (laughs) That's not what they taught me. (laughs) But just saying what it felt. I said, I don't think you have a snowball's chance. I said, you need help that I can't give you here. I said, here's the only thing. And back in 1992, I did a series on Jesus principles applied to marriage. It's called Building Your House on the Rock. And I, I got one of those, how far back this was. I got a cassette series in the box, and I handed it to him. And I said, here's the only hope I can imagine for you guys is at breakfast, if you'll just listen to one of these messages at breakfast together and pray together, then, then maybe you can get some help. Now, I'll be honest with you, I didn't think there was any chance. Now, back in those days, we were about one-seventh of our size today. We had probably about 1,000 people who attended here. And we used to have, at the end of these services, an altar call. Where, we, where I would give people an opportunity to come forward and kneel and pray if they wanted to do that. <clears throat> and so I was standing right here, and service was over, and I'd invited people to come forward. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw something, and I had to turn to make sure I saw what I was seeing. See, see right over here where these steps are, <clears throat> this is where people knelt. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw a man and a woman not kneeling at this altar, but, but lying here in each other's arms. Now, I've been pastoring for now 40 years. I've never seen that before since. (laughs) And when I looked over there, it was the couple that was in my office. You know, I'm happy to tell you they went on. They've moved to Texas now. I get cards and letters from them all the time. They're serving God in a church. Do you know what happened? They loved each other. They just forgot it. They had to remember their love, and that's what Jesus is calling us. Remember, remember, remember. You will never have to be reminded of how much you're afraid. You will always have to be reminded of how much you love. The truth of the matter is, Peter did love Jesus. But now here's the point of the message. There's a whole bunch of this I'm not going to get to preach today. I need a whole other hour to preach the rest of this message. But let me just end it here. Peter loved Jesus very much. But the problem that he had now was he was in the process of punishing himself. And right now, he felt shame and guilt and despair and failure. And when we punish ourselves, I don't know why it is, But it's like we have some kind of feeling. Maybe if I can just make myself feel bad enough, maybe God will see how pathetic I am and do something. Jesus was looking at Peter's future here. And Jesus was saying, listen, Jesus was saying, look, Peter, your guilt is not doing me any good. Your your despair is not doing me any good. Your shame is not doing anyone any good. So Jesus was saying, Peter, you need to let go of that and ask the question, do you love me? And he called him back to his love. Now, certainly this has an impact on our Christian life. We need to understand that God's not interested in us being guilty before him. He's interested in us loving him. But I want to take this to some other relationships. 
there's a husband here today, and you failed your wife, and you know it, and maybe she's told you about it, and you've got, as I said earlier, a whole punch list of things that you need to do differently. Sir, could I tell you today, your wife does not need your shame. Your wife does not need your guilt. She doesn't need your self-flagellation. She doesn't need you to be so discouraged that you quit. She needs you to love her. That's what she's looking for. I'm talking to a wife here today. You feel like a failure? Maybe, maybe in your mind you're a failure. Maybe your husband's never said it, but you feel like a failure. Well, your husband doesn't need your guilt or your shame. He needs you to love him. And let me just tell you something, and I know this is really, really on the secular side, I guess, although work is something that we're to do for the Lord. Most of us love our jobs more than we realize we love them. You might talk to someone who's unemployed. And if the truth be told, your boss doesn't need your guilt and your shame and your self-loathing and your self-punishment. Your boss just needs you to love your job and love the people there. Well, the good news is, and like I said, I don't have time to develop this, but Peter went on to do great. He was one, perhaps the greatest, one of the greatest leaders of the New Testament when he rediscovered his love. But as we close out this message, I guess I want to just take a few moments to talk to you about how much Jesus loves you. Do you know, the Bible says, and I tell you every weekend, how that the way to get to heaven is by putting your faith in Jesus, and we already know how important faith is that Jesus paid the price for you, he died for your sins, and that he rose from the grave, and that if you put your faith in him, he will forgive you and save you. Romans 10, 13 says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. One of our political candidates this week said that a fourth of the population was irredeemable. I don't get into politics, but I just want to say that's wrong. Nobody living and breathing is irredeemable. Unfortunately, that candidate stepped into my world, so I'm going to say something about that. Nobody's irredeemable. No one who wants to be right with God. But you know what I've come to believe? In 40 years of pastoring and meeting people, there are a lot of people I've met who wouldn't want to come to God. And honestly, I don't think it's because they don't believe in the plan of salvation. They'll say something like this. They'll say, it can't be so simple. Let me translate that. What they're saying is, I feel so bad about my failure. I don't believe that just calling and asking God for forgiveness and accepting Jesus, what I've done is so bad, I, I don't think that that balances out. It can't be enough. And I think because of shame and guilt, people run from God, and it's such a mistake. I was reading a little clip from Steve Brown, a Christian author's book, and he was telling about when he started in ministry, he was counseling a woman who had been miserable for years, and she came in to talk with him, and she said, the reason I'm miserable is I cheated on my husband 15 years ago, 20 years ago, I think it was. And um, she said, he doesn't know. And Steve said, well, you're going to have to tell him. And she said, well, I can't do that. She said, if I tell him, it might blow up a very good marriage. He said, well, you're miserable, and the only way you can have peace is to be honest, come clean. She said, okay. But she pointed her, her finger in his face and said, but if I tell him and we get divorced, I'm going to hold you responsible. 
And Steve said he prayed like he never prayed before. He saw her the next Sunday at church, and she was really, really happy. And he asked her, he got, kind of, he got alone a moment in the hallway, and he said, hey, how'd it go? And she said, when I told him, he told me, I knew about it 20 years ago. He said, I was just waiting for you to tell me so I could tell you how I've forgiven you and how much I love you. Do you know that that's how God is with you? So many of us run from God. Oh, we don't, we don't sell it to anybody. We, come, we even come to church. But we're running from God, and we've got so much shame and guilt because we failed. Can you hear the voice of Jesus saying, your shame is not doing me any good? Your guilt and your self-punishment's not doing, 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 doing us any good. I mean, after all, that's why Jesus was punished. He was punished for you. Isn't there somebody here that's tired of shame? Isn't there somebody here that's tired of guilt and carrying that load? And that's why the Bible, Jesus said, come to me. Come to Jesus. That's who he is. That's what he does. Jesus is in the business of rebooting. He's in the business of people moving on. That's what he came for. He came so you could move on. I mean, he, he offers you a gift of, of washing your sins away and making you a daughter of God, making you a son of God. He knows you're guilty. But come to him. Quit running. Quit punishing yourself. Don't put yourself out of the family when he wants you in the family. Well, let's close this out. Today, if you're here and you say, Mark, I want to make that step, well, I'm going to help you. I'm going to pray a prayer, and these are not magic words. What matters is what you feel in your heart, not so much what you say with your mouth, but these are words that call on Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me for just a moment? And if you want to pray this prayer with me, I'll pray it slowly so that you can say it with me. You can decide if you want to. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner, but I believe you love me anyway. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. And I bring all my sin to you. Please forgive me and make me your child. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I know that if you just prayed to receive Jesus, you may have a lot of questions. But if you did, I'll have a gift I want to give you. There's a gift bag. Let me see if I've got one over here. I do. Hang on just a second. If you just prayed with me to receive Jesus, I have a gift I want to give you. There's some information in here, a new Bible. And, and just take the card that's in the seat back in front of you, the card that you got when you came in, and just check the box, I prayed with Mark, or I prayed to receive Christ. Please come back to guest services. There's one right out in the lobby. There's another one back there. And just say, I pray with Mark. Nobody will hassle you. We just want to give you some stuff to help you get started on your journey. Thanks for being here. God bless. We'll see you soon.